Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're tackling another very important subject in Indian country. We're speaking about cancer, and we're focusing on cancer education in Alaska. And the reason for that will be obvious when you realize who our guest is. It's Dr. Katie Cueva. Katie, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Now, Katie, a lot of folks know you. You've been around the country. I've heard you present at scientific meetings in more than one venue. But for those who are hearing your name for the first time, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be on this show. Uh, my name is Katie, and I was born and raised mostly in Alaska, and I'm back here working at the University of Alaska Anchorage, the Institute of Social and Economic Research, as well as at a few other places. And I work in community-based participatory action research. And one of the projects I work on is on cancer prevention and control um, in partnership with people in rural Alaska, particularly with our community health aides and practitioners and with a team at the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. So it's great to be back home working in this area that there's, where there's a lot of need to be able to address people's needs. Well, this is great for the work you're doing. I've heard you, like I said earlier, make presentations in professional venues. We're really excited about you bringing that to the listeners of American Indian Living. The name Cueva does not sound like your typical Aboriginal Native Alaskan name. It's not. So my mom is Melanie Cueva, and her family has been in eastern Canada for the last several hundred years, although her origins are probably mostly from um, Britain and Germany. And she uh, came to Alaska in, well, oh, I think 1980 and met my dad here. And my dad's family is from Mexico. He was born and raised in Los Angeles. But his family is from Tecobotlan and Momac, um, so Jalisco and Zacatecas in Mexico. Um, and like I said, they met here in Anchorage in 1980 and moved to a small community, um, the community of Sitka, Alaska. And my brother and I were born in Mount Edgecombe, which is a small island in southeastern Alaska. So you really have this cross-cultural, indigenous American background from Central America all the way to some of the northernmost parts of the Americas. Uh, do you find that that diverse cultural background has kind of shaped your perspectives at all as you do research and work with uh, indigenous peoples? I do think so. I think that it really helps to have parents from different places in the world to be able to learn and understand that there's different ways of being and living, and those are all valid ways to live in the world. Also, my parents were both public health nurses for the Indian Health Services, so we mostly lived in American Indian and Alaska Native communities when I was growing up, so in uh, Sitka, Alaska, and we moved to Minnesota where my dad went back to school. We lived in Lawton, Oklahoma, and then in Tuba City, Arizona, um, where the Navajo and Hopi reservations are, and then back up to Alaska. So there was a lot of different experiences in there, but I really think that it was just a rich way to grow up and to live in the world, to be able to really live and work with people in these different communities. So you have this rich experience really throughout Indian country. I think you're you know, very well equipped to speak to issues throughout Indian country. And then you've got a very 
interesting and eclectic educational background as well. Tell us, uh, first of all, uh, growing up with public health professionals for parents, I know sometimes the kids look at what their parents are doing and they say, hey, uh, I'm going to do something different. That obviously was not the case with you. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. The apple certainly didn't fall very far from the tree. And I actually currently am on the same grant as my mom, Melanie Cueva, for Cancer Prevention and Education in Alaska. So we work very closely together, but it wasn't always that way, and that wasn't necessarily the intent that I had when I was growing and learning. I think it helped that my parents were able to show what public health was in a very applied sense, so I at least knew that that was a possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I was in college, as an undergrad, I majored in human biology, and I wasn't sure kind of what I wanted to do in the world after that. Um, So after I graduated, I actually went to China for a year and taught English, and then I spent some time in Argentina studying tango, and uh, also spent some time in Taiwan learning Mandarin. And then when I came back to Alaska, because I really wanted to invest and reconnect with my own community, uh, I actually worked as teaching dance, and then I uh, was hired to work with Cook Inlet Tribal Council, which is a nonprofit branch of my region's Alaska Native Corporation, to teach high school. So I worked with primarily Alaska Native high school students, and I taught PE and biology and integrated science and wilderness recreation and multicultural dance and native games. And that was um, pretty amazing. But I kind of came to public health a little bit later after having taught high school for four years. So let me see if I've got this trajectory right. You go to get an undergraduate degree. And where did you go for the undergraduate work? I went to Stanford in California. So you went down in my neck of the woods, so to speak. I'm here in Northern California. I, I can't say I look out at Stanford, but, I mean, it's relatively close compared to Alaska. So you come down to Stanford, you get this training in biology, and you go back ultimately after uh, a somewhat circuitous route that you shared with us to Alaska, and you're working with a bachelor's undergraduate degree, uh, actually teaching science mainly uh, to high school students. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's about right. And while I was there, um, while I began to teach high school, I actually enrolled in a Master of Arts in Teaching program that the organization I was with was, um, it was a privilege for them to be able to support that. So I got a Master of Arts in Teaching while I was a high school teacher. So basically, it sounds like an education trajectory. You're working in school systems. You've now got a master's in teaching. Where does uh, the path diverge and end up taking you into more of a public health career? Yeah, I think that that trajectory, uh, it wasn't intentional. But I think working with the students that I did, there are a number of them that had a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was seeing the impacts of historical trauma and substance Mm. abuse and poverty firsthand, and a lot of just amazing young people that I work with, some of whom were very successful and a lot of really bright and capable people, but a number of whom had challenges that I felt like I couldn't adequately address as a classroom teacher. They just seemed too big for me to be able to tackle. They seemed like much more systemic challenges. Mm -hmm. And so I started searching out different ways to kind of explain and understand and deal with those sorts of things. And I took a class in social determinants of health at Johns Hopkins over one summer, and that really spoke to me. That was a framework that really resonated with my experiences as an educator. And from there on, I I started to slowly shift back into a public health world where I then 
I got a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins, and I did that remotely, and I started that while I was still teaching. Great. Now, for you and me who both have backgrounds in public health, I have a master's in public health as well, and we go to major meetings, social determinants of health, kind of a, a buzz phrase in the public health community. For a layperson hearing this, I mean, what does that mean, social determinants of health? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it is, I think, a very intuitive concept and also one that can be a bit of a challenge to grasp because it's a little bit abstract. And I think for me, the way that I understand social determinants of health is just an understanding that there's multiple things that impact people's health. And there's some of which that we have a lot of control over. This might be more proximal determinants kind of in the language of the field. Things that I can really make individual decisions about. You know, if I have some broccoli in my fridge and I've got some ice cream in the freezer, I can make a choice about which one of those I'd like to have for dinner tonight. Mm -hmm. As long as I have those resources. So that's something I have control over. But then I think about social determinants is much more upstream. So there are things that are influenced by the society and the world around me, things about like what kind of income I have to be able to decide what I can put in my freezer given the budget mm -hmm. that I work with. Or maybe there's not healthy food places close to where I, I live or close to where I work, so I don't have access to those things to be able to put that nutritious food in my freezer for, or my fridge for myself or my family. Um, it could also be the impact of my family and the experiences they've gone through, especially thinking about historical trauma in terms of Alaska Native and American Indian and other indigenous people. Maybe there have been ways that we've been raised or, or things that we've been subjected to that um, influence the, the ways in which we interact with the world. So basically, there are certain things that we're actually able to control, certain things that we can make choices about, and like you're saying, certain things that really we don't have a, a choice about, whether it's options for exercise in our local area or some of these other uh, examples that you've given to us. You catch this vision. They're taking a class at John Hopkins, uh, just a, uh, a short course, it sounded like, and you decide you're going to move into the public health field. You ultimately get your master's. Now, what I find interesting about your story, and, and this may speak to a lot of people in Indian country, is that you stayed working at your post of duty, so to speak, while you were getting the master's degree from Johns Hopkins. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I certainly continued to teach while I started that journey, that educational journey. And I feel like that felt really complimentary to me, and I, I continued to feel an obligation to the community in which I live and which I work. I did transition at um, maybe a year or so in. It was, it was a little bit longer of a process because I did it remotely. Um, so starting to work in public health research, I started to work at the University of Alaska Anchorage, where I, I'm still employed. And I also at that time, I was hired on by Johns Hopkins with their Center for American Indian Health. And I still do some work for them, some remote support and technical assistance work, especially with evaluation of their program. That's exciting. So really... What I hear you saying, Katie, is for someone who's listening today and they're saying, you know, my tribe really needs me or I'm really involved with this uh, project with this uh, Native corporation or wherever they're at, uh, Alaska Native, American Indian, uh, Native Hawaiian, they're basically saying, I can't really leave, yet they feel a need for more education. Your example says there are options in today's world with online education, distance education. Uh, but someone listening to all this, they might say, well, this sounds like a, 
a pretty difficult task. Is it something that that's really doable, or did you feel like it was such a stretch you would never advise anyone else to do it? <laughs> that's a good question. I do think that there are options, that it is possible, you know, to get some more education even while continuing to stay and work in the community or in the situation where you're at. I also know that there's short courses like the one that I took through Johns Hopkins, um, and there are a number that are particularly tailored for American Indian and Alaska Native folks who are interested in public health or people working in American Indian and Alaska Native communities as well. So there are those options, and there's a number of scholarships available, so it can be not a large financial burden to do those as well. As far as kind of juggling it all, though, and, and trying to do a, a master's in public health while working full-time, I mean, I wouldn't say it was the easiest path to follow, but obviously it can be done. Well, you're a living example, right? Yeah, it it can happen. Actually, for the record, I did my MPH the same way through a distance program. So, I mean, there's a number of us out there, and uh, it seems like we've survived, right? Right, right. I also think that there's some value, you know, certainly in being able to get your feet wet while you're staying rooted in your community, but there can also be some value in if you know that you're really ready to take that plunge and get a, another degree or a degree in something that you're really interested in, sometimes it can be really useful to have that time and space away from all of the obligations that you otherwise have. And I really appreciated that when I went back to school um, for my doctoral degree where I was out of state for a couple years to, to just have a little bit more space to really focus on that. So really, you're you're sharing with us some you know variety of ways for someone who has indigenous roots and wants to serve in indigenous communities to get training and then give back. So you leave home, you go to Stanford on the West Coast, then you're at Johns Hopkins for a, a master's in, in public health, and then uh, somewhere along the way, you picked up a doctoral degree, and, and where did you do your doctoral work? I went to Harvard, to the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. And your doctorate ended up in what discipline? I ended up getting a dual doctoral degree. So my home department was in social and behavioral sciences. So some of those ideas around social determinants of health, as well as sort of more behavioral, more individual choices about health. Um, and then the other department I was in was in nutrition. Tremendous, tremendous. Well, we are going to want to tap into your insights as we speak about cancer, especially among Alaska Natives, and especially about cancer education. We do have to step away just for a few minutes. Katie Cueva is not going to go away. She will be back with us for the next segment. We hope you'll stay tuned as well because it's things that can make a difference for you personally as well as for your communities. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with the next segment of American Indian Living right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical. 
medical unit. Respond to 102 Maple Avenue. Possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose here with Dr. Katie Cueva. Katie has been sharing with us her background from uh, a teacher in Alaska to a public health professional now with a doctoral degree from Harvard and training at Johns Hopkins along the way. Katie, I mean, it's really an impressive uh, educational pedigree, and I will say from someone who's interacted with you on a, a personal level, you're not uh, someone who has become uh, arrogant with your uh, high-powered degrees. You seem to be a very down-to-earth person who's making a difference in, in people's lives, and I so appreciate that about you. Well, thank you. I think that even those of us who have fancy-sounding degrees, we're just real people, too. (laughs) That's right. All of us are. And so, Katie, you've got an interesting story beyond your educational training because you're working in an area of cancer and cancer education that gets a lot of attention with Alaska Natives and Native Americans, American Indians in the lower 48. Why is it that there is so much attention, first of all, on cancer? the Alaska contact where I'm more familiar, uh, cancer is the leading cause of death for both Alaska Native people and also for people in the state as a whole. Mm-hmm. I believe nationally it's the second leading cause of death. So there's just a lot of people who are affected by cancer, whether they're a survivor of it or a family member or, or know someone who's passed away because of cancer. So I think it's something that really impacts a lot of us. Most definitely. Yeah, just the scale of it can be quite large. Like in Alaska, one out of every five deaths for Alaska Native people is due to cancer. And it's also something that's relatively recent in our communities, where in a lot of Alaska Native languages, there isn't even a word for cancer. Um, so it didn't used to be the leading cause of death. And it started to become one oh, in about the 1950s and remains the leading cause of death today. Now, that is just fascinating. Not even a word for cancer in many tribal communities, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've heard from a number of the people that we work with that when they come in to take a training with us, they say, you know, their association with that word, and some people even call it the C word because just saying the full word cancer can be so scary is 
people talking about. I, in fact, there's um, a quote that one of our learners shared with us that if you don't mind, I'll read to you. Please. They said, cancer is a big, scary topic. When someone hears cancer, they automatically think that it is their death. Patients don't automatically think they can overcome it. In our village, it seems as though you hear more about people dying from cancer than surviving cancer. Mm. is isn't an easy topic. Wow. So this is definitely a sobering topic, and it's a topic that... Uh, has this fascinating history among Alaska natives with it being virtually unknown prior to uh, contact with outside peoples. So here's the question then. For someone like you, coming out of uh, a doctoral program at Harvard, you had your feet uh, clearly in public health in Alaska prior to that. Were you already working in the uh, in the cancer field before you ever ended up working on the doctorate? I was. And in fact, this work was work that my mom was a part of. So I was drawn into it quite some time ago. Oh, about at least 10 years ago, I would say. And I just finished up my doctorate last year. And she came to this work kind of when, when the kids went off to college. She got back into the, the workforce and She's a nurse and a nurse educator, so she was working with Alaska's Community Health Aid Program. Mm-hmm. I can talk a little bit more about that at some later point, too. They're just incredible people who are our primary care providers out in rural Alaska. Mm-hmm. And she heard a lot from the community health aides and practitioners that they wanted more information about cancer for themselves and for their communities because it was such a concerning and scary topic. And I felt like they, there's just a lot of knowledge that they wanted to have to be able to share and have for themselves as well. And so she started providing in-person cancer courses. And I had just come back to Anchorage from kind of that circuitous class that we talked about earlier and was committed to working with people in my own community. And so she would bring me in for some of those in-person courses. And at that point, I was teaching high school and I was also teaching dance. And so I would lead movement sessions to kind of bring some of the information that they were talking about about cancer into their body. Um, just kind of a little bit of movement to, to get everything, put everything together to talk about physical activity, to talk about uh, things that they had learned that they wanted to remember. So I was part of those courses for quite some time. And then as I got more training in public health, I started to do a few more things, started to write, help synthesize some of the papers and do some of the literature review. And then we actually wrote a grant together, a National Cancer Institute grant, uh, uh, maybe five, six years ago. Right now we're on year four of five of this grant. Um, so we're actually now working together, me and my mom, as well as some other folks. So you put together a grant dealing with cancer in Alaska. What was the focus of the grant? Well, this particular grant is a little different than the work that had been done in Alaska for cancer previously. This grant is to develop, implement, and evaluate culturally respectful online cancer education mm. with and for Alaska's community health aides and practitioners. And the real big shift there for us was to provide information online. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the ways that we've done in-person courses over the last several years have really relied on ways of teaching and ways of understanding and learning and knowing that emphasize relationships and humor. There's a lot of laughter in these classes, as well as interactivity, movement, expressive arts. Like we did a lot of playing with play and um, getting up and moving around and some role plays and storytelling and many digital stories. Drew on paper plates with markers. And we weren't quite sure how to bring all of that to online education, so we really relied on all the community health aides and practitioners to help us out and point us in the right direction to inform this work. Now, this is such an interesting project. I know many of our listeners have not been to Alaska. One of our, actually, stations that airs American Indian Living is up in Nome, and they invited me a few years ago to come up. We did some programs up there. And I I mean, I passed through Anchorage before, but just uh, just flying up to Nome and just sensing a little bit more how uh, 
how remote much of Alaska is, it, I mean, I would imagine that a lot of places don't even have uh, reliable Internet connectivity. Is that true or is that uh, a thing of the past? Yeah, no, that's a really great point. And Nome is just an amazing place. I was just up there last year for a dance residency and had some family up there. So hello to everyone in Nome. Very good. <laughs> but uh, in theory, all of the community health aid and practitioner clinics have high-speed Internet access. Mm. So this really relied on that kind of key piece because it's hard to do online education if you don't have access to the online. Right. Now, a number of our chaps, they don't have Internet access at home. Um, so we rely on also supportive supervisors to permit chaps to really engage in this material while they're at work. Mm-hmm. So basically, there's this uh, amazing group of people. We've featured uh, community health aides on the show in the past and uh, doing this great work. And you folks there at the University of Alaska, you, your mom, and your team are saying we need to help these people have more resources to make a difference when it comes to cancer in often uh, remote villages. So you've been doing this uh, under this one grant, as you mentioned, for some four years. What's been happening? What have you been seeing develop as you've worked on this project? Yeah. So most of my team is located at the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, and we have, at this point, 11 different online learning modules that are available online at the Distance Learning Network, and they're publicly available. They're free. So if anyone listening logs into the ANTHC Distance Learning Network, or you can go on akchat.org and navigate the cancer education, and then there'll be some, you'll have to click on the link for the courses or for the online learning modules and create a little login. But then you can access any of these modules as well. And so we have different modules on topics like tobacco and cancer, nutrition and physical activity and cancer, men's health, cancer treatment, grief, loss, and end-of-life palliative care, children in grief, um, cancer treatment, the whole variety of different topics that um, our community health aides and practitioners can log in and complete, and they can receive two hours of continuing medical education for as well. So someone who's listening in right now, they may not be in Alaska. They may be because we have listeners uh, on more than one station in Alaska. If they say, well, boy, this sounds like great information for me to take advantage of, this continuing educational aspect, what type of practitioners might be able to benefit from that? So at this point, these modules are only certified for continuing medical education for Alaska's chaps and for Alaska's behavioral health aides and practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's information that really a lot of people, if they're interested in, might be able to learn something from. Or I've had a number of people um, say that they've gone through one of the modules and they feel like it's the kind of thing that they could adapt to their own community or context. Mm -hmm, so I think mm -hmm. that that's also an opportunity for people to look through them, not just because they are interested in that information, but because they're looking for a framework that could inform a project that they would like to do. Now, I know of a, a lot of our listeners who are, are very interested in what you're sharing, Katie, and they're uh, saying, boy, those websites went by awfully quickly. Can you give us again uh, maybe a single point of contact where people could tap into these learning resources? Sure. Just akchaps.org. So akchaps, so AK for Alaska, presumably. Mm-hmm. And CHAPS for Community Health Aid Program. 
Okay, so akchaps.org. And if I go to that website, what will I be looking for? So you'd be looking on the top. There's a, a pull-down bar for cancer education, and you can click on that, and then you'd be able to access a whole variety of resources. So it's under distance learning at the top from cancer education, and there's kind of a, a little sidebar that pops up. But if you just click on cancer education, then you'll see off to the right there's cancer education navigation, and there's some cancer education course, community videos, there's digital stories that we have available online, as well as some resources about different activities that we've done in classes that somebody could just take and use in their own context, um, some scripts for different theater that we've done, other resources, and then a link to kind of academic publications that we've had. Tremendous, tremendous. So I think we've got it. So akchaps.org. We are going to talk more with uh, Katie. We're going to talk about practical lessons that they've been uh, gathering and things that can make a difference as far as making a difference with uh, cancer risk in your own life and your communities. You don't want to miss our next segment. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with more with Dr. Cueva. Stay tuned. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So, whether it's around your neighborhood... Or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose with Dr. Katie Cueva. Katie is someone who has been 
Well, you've heard her story. If you've been with us from the top of the hour, she's really been throughout Indian country. She's back in her native homeland, if you will, of Alaska, making a difference, especially in cancer education, among other things. We're focused on that, though. And uh, Katie, I appreciate not only your ability to articulate, but your good auditory skills. And uh, just a, a little comment here at the break. Katie was saying uh, very gently, she said, I think you um, put an S at the end of the website. And uh, what she meant is the website is akchap, C-H-A-P, Dot org So AK for Alaska, C-H-A-P for Community Health Aid Program, with no S at the end. Right, Katie? That's right. Yeah, and so thank you for mentioning that. We don't want any of you to be led astray. You're looking for some of this great material. Go to akchap.org, and they'll be looking for links that refer to things like education and cancer. If they keep those words in mind, they should be able to navigate the site, right? Yep. Okay. Well, we want to uh, let people know those great resources there they can take advantage of, but we're not going to leave it at that. We want to talk about some of the uh, the great things that, that you're doing that can help us personally. One of the things you and I talked about off-air was something that generates a lot of discussion in Indian country, and that is tobacco. We often talk about uh, sacred tobacco, traditional tobacco, commercial tobacco, Give us some of the tobacco context in Alaska and how you look at tobacco, because uh, maybe before we even talk about that, this is something significant, the dialogue, right, when it comes to cancer? For sure, yeah. Okay, so significant cancer connection, and what's the context there in Alaska? Sure, and Alaska is a little different. Well, there are a number of communities that have traditional relationships with tobacco and traditional uses for tobacco. In Alaska, we don't actually have um, traditional tobacco use. So all of our tobacco use is commercial tobacco, um, and one of our leading causes of cancer among Alaska Native people is lung cancer, the mm-hmm. second leading cause of cancer incidence, um, and it's one of our leading causes of cancer mortality as well as cancer death, and the majority of lung cancer risk is due to tobacco use, so it's something that we really work with people to support them to reduce their tobacco use, quit using tobacco, or to stay tobacco-free. So it's a little bit different context here in Alaska than in other places in the United States. So really, a message in Alaska about total avoidance of tobacco would be considered culturally appropriate. Is Am I hearing you right? Yes, that's right. And even though in other contexts it's appropriate to support people's traditional uses of tobacco, we're also um, working to support people to remain free of commercial uses of tobacco. Here, it's just a little different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... When you're giving this message, and again, a little bit different maybe nuances there of the messaging, but I think everyone in Indian country is pretty clear when we start speaking about commercial tobacco or addictive tobacco or or daily use of large amounts of tobacco. I I don't think there's any disagreement in the lower 48 and in Alaska, but what kind of messages do you find resonate with people in Alaska when you're trying to uh, assist them in getting free of those commercial tobacco products? Yeah, I think one of the approaches that we've really taken with our online models, which was something that our community health aides and practitioners and other community members um, encourage us to take, is to really incorporate the use of stories um, and to share a lot of Alaska-specific visuals and stories and statistics and information. So, for example, in our in our tobacco and cancer module, our online module that we have, um, there's someone who tells their story about how they're a tobacco cessation counselor and we kind of introduce people to the module and, 
And it's a real person that people um, who are in Alaska can look at their picture and relate to uh, and also see that they, it's something that they can do. They could put tobacco like it was someone else's done. We also incorporate a lot of digital stories, and these stories were created mostly by people who were enrolled in one of our in-person cancer education or wellness courses, so created a digital story with my mom, Melanie Clever, or Laura Revels, who's another member of our team, which is awesome. She's our tech guru. Um, and they've given us permission to share these digital stories as part of our online modules or also online at akchap.org on our website. And so we include those because I think it really allows people to connect to that relationship um, so that it can support them to create that own change in their own life, to catalyze some more change for themselves or for their community. Now, these digital stories are really compelling. I think more than once I've heard you in professional settings uh, share some of these stories. Give someone a feel uh, for some of the other content and, and what they'd expect. You shared a little bit uh, about the the module dealing with tobacco, but what, what might a digital story look like and sound like? Sure. So there are often stories that um, people have written, so they write their own scripts, and they're usually about something that happened in their own lives. Maybe they talk about, you know, losing a spouse from lung cancer and then having a son who is a tobacco user and just expressing their concern about that as well as some of the information that they know or have learned about the relationship between tobacco and lung cancer. And so just putting that all down so that, um, that they can kind of have a, a packaged thing to be able to show someone else is often a way to start a conversation. These digital stories often have music behind them, too, that the, the creator of them has put in. And then they have pictures that the author has put in, you know, of, of their loved ones, of their family, of the place where they live. Um, sometimes some clip art that is publicly available that they can put in to help make their point. Or images that reinforce some of the learning they've had about relationships between these risk factors like tobacco and um, diet and physical activity. People also talk a lot about um, traditional hunting and gathering and ways of gathering food and being physically active, mm. dancing and going for walks and berry picking, which is also something that we really try to support in these online modules, is supporting people to re-engage with their culture and re-engage with traditional ways of getting healthy foods from the land and also getting physical activity, because those can really help reduce our cancer risk as well. So we've spoken some about the connection between tobacco and cancer. I think most people recognize that. You've also spoken about diet, and you have a whole module or more than one module dealing with diet and cancer. Yeah, we have one module that looks just at nutrition and physical activity in cancer. So you've alluded to some of the ideas. You're incorporating things that uh, you mentioned berry picking, and so we're assuming, well, the exercise is good and presumably the berries lower cancer risk. Is that one of the things that the research shows us? Yeah, I think one of the things that... Um, we know about cancer risk is that the majority of cancer risk is also is something that we can address, which I think is often something that we don't realize. You know, mm. cancer feels like a monolithic thing that we don't really have any control over, which, I mean, there is some of that that we just can't control. Um, but there are a lot of things that we can make a difference on. The majority of cancer risk could be eliminated if we were all chose to be tobacco-free and were able to have healthy diets and maintain healthy body weight and get good physical activity. So in, the, in terms of kind of nutrition and physical activity in cancer, um, it's mostly about kind of those general sorts of things, about having a, a healthy body weight and eating lots of uh, uh, fruits and vegetables as well as fiber, 
And in Alaska, we're quite lucky where a lot of us still have gather food and, and get food from the land. I just went out hooligan fishing last week, and so I've been busy preparing that this week, processing it, smoking it, um, as well as picking some nettles and greens um, that I now have in my freezer. And a lot of people do that to some extent. And a lot of those foods are really healthy for us. A lot of our traditional meats are really low in saturated fat and have um, higher amounts of omega-3 unsaturated fatty acids, which are more healthy for us. And as opposed to some store-bought meats, um, which have more saturated fat in them or more processed foods. You know, some processed meats are associated with cancer as well. So avoiding those can, can help reduce our cancer risk as well as just help us continue to get that physical activity and maintain a healthy body weight. So when we talk about these processed meats, these were things like the bacons and the hot dogs and cold cuts, uh, you know, salamis and bologna, things like that. Are we on the same page? Yep, that's right. And I guess some of the data I've seen, it's uh, the way these are prepared with some of these uh, nitrates and other uh, compounds that make them especially dangerous as far as cancer risk. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, that's, also, that's true. The nitrates and the nitrates are some of the things that we think are associated with cancer risk. And the, the risk of them isn't, isn't a particularly large cancer risk, but they are certainly associated. They are a known carcinogen. They are associated with cancer. So if it's something that we can avoid, um, it would be better to do that, even if the uh, increase in our cancer risk is relatively small. It's still there. So what I'm finding interesting about the dialogue is you've shared something with me that I didn't realize before, and that was this absence of cancer, apparently, when we look at anthropologic evidence, language evidence in Alaska, absence of cancer prior to somewhere around 1950 or somewhere, something like that. And uh, as we're talking about some of these risk factors, we're talking about tobacco, which you're sharing with us was basically unknown in uh, in Alaska for, for many centuries. Am I hearing you right? So there's certainly been a huge transition in Alaska. The advent of colonialism, which you know is more recent in Alaska than it is in a lot of other places um, in, in the lower 48 in the United States or in the Americas. So we have had this big transition in diet and lifestyle, as well as you know cultural disintegration. Although there's a lot of work to continue to maintain connection and revitalize culture, but you know you're not wrong in pointing out that there's an association there between times when Things have really shifted in terms of tobacco use and diet and physical activity and also increasing cancer. Mm-hmm. So these are, I mean, I think these are these are fascinating. They're really, uh, you're really making some powerful arguments for reconnecting with kind of indigenous roots wherever people are at, aren't you? Yeah, and I think it's also, we shouldn't, you know, there's a lot of really great reasons to connect with our indigenous roots and with the cultures that we come from. And some of it, you know, coming from a purely scientific perspective is just about physical activity and nutrition and being able to decrease cancer risk. But I think there's also a much bigger part of it that really connects people to spirit and to culture. Mm. Um, And that's a little bit harder to quantify, but it's something that I think is just as important that we need to keep in mind. Well, I appreciate you mentioning this because we speak about the whole uh, cancer continuum. We're really not just talking about prevention, but we also end up talking about supporting families and dealing with grief, and your program really helps address some of those needs too, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we try to provide information along the whole spectrum of cancer care, and um, as well as, you know, including supporting family members who are diagnosed with cancer and understanding more about those treatments, as well as grief and loss and um, cancer survivorship too. 
So when we talk in Native cultures about the value of connecting with community, of traditional roots, this really brings us to some of these spiritual elements that might be very important as we have discussions about grief. Is that safe to conclude? Yeah, I do think that, you know, there's very unique ways that we associate and process grief and process dealing with something as large as an individual diagnosed with cancer or someone who's supposed to have passed away from cancer. And I think that often people turn to spirituality, turn to the cultural traditions that they're familiar with for support, as well as the relationships with the family for that support. Katie, you're sharing so much great information. I am so glad that our show is not over. We do have to step away for just a couple of minutes. Before we do, if uh, you've been struggling to Find some place where you could pull over if you've been listening in the car and you could actually jot down the website. You're hoping for it one more time. It's simply akchap.org. That's AK, the abbreviation for Alaska, then C-H-A-P for Community Health Aid Program. And uh, so, again, akchap.org. You can get much more information there. You can tap into some of these digital stories as well as these learning modules. But we have got uh, Dr. Cueva herself who's going to stay by for one more segment. Don't go away. We'll be back with our final segment right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. Katie Cueva has stayed by for the whole hour. Hopefully uh, you've been with us from the top of the hour. If you're just joining us, it's a great program speaking about cancer education, especially in Alaska, but lessons for all of us wherever we're at. The website, if you're just joining us, is akchap.org. Dr. Cueva is uh, there with uh, a number of affiliations. One of them is with the University of Alaska Katie, we've been speaking about indigenous diets, and I know when I speak in places in the lower 48, we'll often hear tribes speaking about the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. I'm guessing those were not three food groups that were historically specially valued in Alaska. Is that safe to say? That is fairly safe to say. We have a little bit different of a climate than for those sorts of things. So you do, though, have roots that are very close to uh, uh, sustainable agriculture, if you will, or at least uh, gathering as well as as hunting and fishing. So you're pointing people back to those more indigenous foods as healthier options, as you shared earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, even if the context is a little bit different, I think reconnecting to those traditional foods, no matter where you are at, can um, be quite a healthy experience, both for, for your body as well as for your mind. I think one of the more surprising things that you mentioned to many listeners who've not been to Alaska is you talked about uh, gathering the greens, the nettles, uh, other things. I think there's a lot of people who still have this idea that Alaska is basically just snow and ice and there are no green uh, products up there at all. Can can you help us see the big picture of the diversity of Alaska? (laughs) Sure. We are not actually frozen all year round, that's for sure. It is actually a, an interesting question, though, because Alaska is about a fifth the size of the whole United States. And so if you were to put a picture of Alaska in, in its actual size over what we refer to as the lower 48 states, we stretch from coast to coast and all the way from um, the north of the, the lower 48 down to Texas. So we're quite a large state. So our climates are also quite diverse. Mm-hmm. Down in southeast Alaska, there's a rainforest, and up north it's an Arctic desert, and in the interior it can get really quite hot in the summer, up in the hundreds and, and very cold in the winter, down to even negative 40, maybe and sometimes below. And I live in Anchorage, which is on the coast, so it's a little bit more moderate. We have much milder winters and a little bit cooler summers, but it's a really different place in different regions of the state. But in all of our regions, we do have summers, and there are green things that grow in the summer that people traditionally gather. And in different places in the state, there are different traditions of what things, what people used to hunt, whether they're caribou or whale. Or lots of people all over the state also fish for salmon or get herring or, or hooligan or uh, all sorts of different things, depending on where you're at. So when you're giving messages about diet and cancer, we've mentioned some of the connections. What points have resonated with your with your learners? Because you're training, really, the frontline health providers, these community health aides, what kind of feedback have you gotten about some of these modules, whether it's dealing with nutrition or other topics? Sure. Well, we've gotten lots of great feedback. We actually invite people to complete a quiz at the end of each module, and they have to pass the quiz in order to get continuing education credit. And then we ask people to complete an evaluation survey so people can tell us what they liked and what they didn't like, and then if they intend to change any of their behavior for themselves or for their patients or communities as a result of the module. And as of the last time I looked at the data, 98% of our learners said that they plan to 
share the information they learn in the module with other people, including with their patients, with their family, mm -hmm. their friends, and with their community members. Mm -hmm. We've also heard the vast majority of people, I think that's 97%, said that within the next six months they plan to change something about their own behavior to reduce their cancer risk. And the biggest ones we see on that are people say that they're going to increase their physical activity and eat healthier. And then a number of folks have also told us that they're going to get screened for cancer, they're going to get that colonoscopy or mammogram they've been putting off, um, or they might cut down on their tobacco use or stop using tobacco as well. Wow. So basically, this is not just an educational program. It's uh, a motivational program. At least it sounds like it's having that effect on the learners. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I think that um, one of the things that we really wanted to do was to support learners both to take better care of themselves as well as to take better care of their patients and community members. And I think it seems like that people have told us that they're being supported to do both of those things. One of the things that uh, has been interesting to me are some of the common denominators in all the chronic diseases. Right now, I don't think you and I have probably talked about this, but I'm working with a small grant in Indian country dealing with diabetes in kind of an unusual way. I've done a lot of work over the last, oh, probably five years with high blood pressure. And we have a book out called 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. That's generated some interest among indigenous groups. And so we're, we're trying to help people see that when we focus on any chronic disease, we talk about lifestyle. So we actually end up intervening in all these chronic diseases. So someone who may not have heard messaging or it may not have resonated with them for diabetes, if they start hearing about things that deal with their high blood pressure in a more natural or traditional way, and they get excited about that for their blood pressure, they're going to be making decisions that also help their diabetes. And we could extend that in this dialogue to cancer. One of the obvious things that's coming to my mind that, that links all those three conditions is uh, this problem we have not it's not an Indian country problem. It's a problem uh, throughout the world, really, and that is uh, increasing weight. Uh, what are you seeing in that whole dialogue? Because I think you've done some special work looking at, at weight issues and how it relates to cancer and other chronic diseases. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I do think that it's, you know, for better or for worse, when, when we can address some of these different factors that are really common across all different chronic diseases. Um, and, and you're right, there is a strong connection between being overweight or obese and, and cancer risk. And actually, the CDC recently came out with a fact sheet on overweight, obesity, and cancer. And that's available online. You could just Google obesity and cancer, and probably that CDC fact sheet would pop up. Mm -hmm. And there's 13 different cancers that are definitively associated with overweight and obesity. And there's a few others where the evidence is still a little uncertain. I work as a CDC CSPE Applied Epidemiology Fellow here in Alaska at the Section of Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion. And we recently came out with a fact sheet, too, that I helped put together that looks at overweight obesity and cancer risk just in Alaska. So it looks at some of that national information, but then brings it home to our state, um, where two in three Alaska adults are overweight or obese. So it's an issue here as well as in the rest of the lower 48 and increasingly a global concern. Now, you're mentioning these connections with overweight and cancer, but you also slipped in there that you're an applied epidemiology fellow with the Centers for Disease Control. I mean, I don't know how many hats you wear, Katie. I'm not going to try to figure that out. But uh, what is an applied epidemiology fellow? Oh, it's this um, pretty great program that's coordinated by the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists. 
and then it's funded by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, where folks can work in a state or local department of public health and, and look at the data. So epidemiologists, they look at the data, and then they apply partisan, and they do something with that data that mm. can help inform different choices at the state or local level or different interventions, different ways to, to focus to be able to reduce chronic disease or whatever that area of concern is. So I get to look a lot of, at a lot of the information about the state of Alaska and summarize that information to help inform areas where we're going to focus or just provide more information to people in Alaska. Now, one of the things I find as a clinician, as I'm seeing patients, there's, uh, well, this common belief, I think, among practitioners that if they just tell someone to lose weight, that they're going to actually go home and lose weight. And when I talk with patients, I mean, it's very frustrating because I don't have a single patient that I can think of that uh, is carrying especially a lot of extra weight that feels like they're they're happy and they want to try to gain more. So when a practitioner says lose weight and then they give them a hard time when they come back a few months later and haven't lost weight, this is uh, really disheartening. Is there something practical that uh, you try to give as far as messaging that can help people maybe trim down a little bit? Yeah, I think that's probably a concern for a lot of clinicians is that it can be hard. And I think it, you know, a little bit of context, I think some of it comes back to that social determinants of health, but there might be reasons why it's hard for people to trim down on their weight that it's hard for us to address on the individual level. So we have to dig just a little bit deeper to be able to address what else is going on for that Mm -hmm. person. I think another thing that can be um, helpful is maybe just to give yourself a little bit more credit. Um, there are some studies that look at the role of healthcare providers, and including our community health aides and practitioners, where just having that honest conversation with somebody does make a difference for people. Mm. And we've also, um, I've read some research, and it, it seems to be true in the work that we've done as well, is that when the healthcare provider is taking care of themselves, too, is that it's easier for them to have that conversation with somebody else and it's also easier for that patient or that person that's listening to them to be able to hear that message um, because it's easier to have trust and you can see that that, that healthcare provider is, is make, taking care of themselves, also making healthy life choices. Tremendous. Katie, you have such great information. I know you've got a wealth of information. I'd love uh, if this show was a two-hour show, but the clock seems to always win, and uh, we've got to say goodbye. Thank you so much for carving out the time out of your busy schedule. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been been great to chat with you. We've got to run. That was Dr. Katie Cueva. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully today's edition of American Indian Living has opened your mind to great resources and other things that motivate you to make healthy decisions. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.